Thank you for having me this afternoon. My story begins in Chicago on the 26th floor of one of the top law firms in the world. I'm 33 years old and working 100 hours a week with a team of other lawyers on a series of documents making the case for the Delaware Bankruptcy Court that our client deserves the protection of US bankruptcy law. The documents are long, convoluted, and unlikely to be read front to back by anyone except for us. But my firm bills us out at $400 to $800 an hour, so of course we are working diligently to make sure that no comma is out of place and no M dash is where an N dash belongs. In short, my story begins with a kind of insanity that is propelling modern capitalism at the moment. And this moment is exactly where I'm supposed to be. I grew up in Washington, DC, attending one of its elite private schools. I then went to Brown University where I achieved some more. I moved into state government in Massachusetts where I was promoted four times in five years, eventually landing as deputy chief of staff to the woman in charge of the administration and finances of the entire state. I left there to pursue my JD and my MBA, degrees that traditionally take five years to complete in three years from Northwestern University, ranked in the top 10 in the United States for both law and business. And from there, I found myself at Sidley Austin, the aforementioned law firm, doing the work of moving capitalism forward. I was on track to make partner by 40 and become a millionaire by age 45. An American success story. Whew. Which brings us back to my office on the 26th floor. The only way I keep sane in this environment is by running for six miles every day. For the past few months, however, I've had to reduce that length from six to three to one to just a few blocks because I had to stop and gasp for breath in a way that didn't feel normal. This morning in June 2012, a colleague and I are leaving the office for five minutes to grab a coffee and move our legs. The Chicago air is soft and fresh. The traffic is calm. The stoplight is changing and we jog across the street to catch it. On the other side, I have to stop for a full minute to catch my breath. Gus looks at me. He really looks at me. Lydia, you look like hell. It's fine, I'm fine. I know I look like hell. I know I've lost 10 pounds for no reason. I know I have been having drenching night sweats. I know all of this, but I really don't want to pay attention to it. No, wait. Stop. You're not fine. You can't breathe. I can't leave the office to go to the doctor. You have to. We are not leaving the sidewalk until you've called your doctor and have an appointment. He stands in front of me, refusing to move. His face, mulish. I give up. Through the sounds of traffic, I dial my doctor, who makes time for me later that morning. I don't tell anyone I'm leaving. I just pretend I'm still in my office, working with the door closed, while I'm heading to my doctor 10 minutes away. To make an extremely long story short, that doctor's appointment turned into a cancer diagnosis of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and my first round of chemotherapy. I don't get back to my office for three weeks. The cancer took four months and six rounds of highly debilitating chemotherapy to clear. 
Then I had a surgery that required opening my chest and removing my thymus, an organ I didn't know existed. After nine months after that conversation with Gus, I returned to my office on the 26th floor. Then during the summer of 2014, two years after my initial diagnosis, I started having breathing problems again. I shouldn't be surprised at this point. Cancer, chemo, and surgery didn't actually stop the way that I worked in the world, the way that I approached my job and my life. I was still trying to do everything on an accelerated schedule and still bullying my body into conforming to the way that my brain wanted it to behave. Stay up late, wake up early, work. The problem is that those breathing problems were a small problem that, because I had a history of cancer, gave my doctor concern. I refused to slow down enough to really think the whole thing through, let alone feel my way into it. So I allowed the doctors to let their concern turn that small problem into a big problem. And then, while managing the big problem, a doctor poked a hole in my heart, creating a massive problem. Suddenly, I was back in the ICU with a doctor named Sam, having just caused my heart to bleed out. The damage was done, his job was over, while about 10 other doctors and surgeons tried to figure out what to do. But Dr. Stam stayed with that group to help make decisions. They spoke to my cancer doctor, they spoke to my heart doctor, they spoke to the surgeon who did my first surgery, they spoke to everyone and eventually reached the conclusion that I had to have an emergency open heart surgery, which was the job of a cardiac surgeon. So my care was turned over to that guy and his team. But Dr. Sam wouldn't leave. He kept checking on me. He kept reassuring my husband. He stayed for hours. And the day after my heart surgery, he came back to see how I was doing. And this is what he found. I'm so tired I can't open my eyes. I'm lying there, as close to being dead as I've ever been, waiting to find some energy to do something as simple as open my eyes. In this haze, I discover something. When someone does something in the room that causes me anger or sadness or frustration, I can't open them. But when I point my energy at something in the room that brings me calm, like my husband's voice or the nurse taking care of me, I can sort of open one. I've never been this tired in my life, so I started experimenting. Not on purpose, obviously, but this is what we do in moments like this. Like water at two degrees. Lower it to one and nothing happens. Lower to zero and suddenly it starts to freeze. I'd never been right at my actual tipping point of being able to discover which emotions and thought patterns could actually bring me life. That day, I'm at one degree. Push me any lower and I freeze. My goal in that hospital room was to stay just above freezing. Enter Dr. Sam, the man who had poked a hole in my heart and put me in this position. He creeps into the room, fully prepared for an onslaught. He's met me. He knows I'm a high-powered attorney. The onslaught doesn't come. Oh, trust me, I start. 
my anger and thirst for justice and vengeance rise up in me, and then my body begins to shut down. To save my life, to stay above zero degrees, I get kind, I get generous, I get calm. Michael's hand in mine is gently reassuring me that he is there no matter what I decide to do. My lovely husband, completely shattered from the hours and hours of unexpected hospital madness, still sitting next to me, still supporting me. I hear the nurse move past my bed, this woman who is there to comfort and encourage and monitor my life with no expectation for anything in return. And Dr. Sam, who is doing his best in a world of impossible expectations. A wave of love and compassion washes completely over me. And I open both of my eyes all of the way. In front of me stands Dr. Sam, silently begging for forgiveness, but braced for wrath to fall on his very human shoulders. And for the first time in my life, I truly feel what it means to forgive. To be clear, my brain chooses to forgive despite the emotions that are clattering away. But the fact that my brain is choosing to forgive over my confused and sad and angry emotions provides me the freedom to smile and jokingly croak out, please do better next time. He chokes back tears while leaning over to check my heartbeat. For the first time in my adult life, a life created in an effort to control and succeed, I feel free. I tell my story, it's very meta, for many reasons to varied audiences, but today I'm sharing it with you because even though you may never go through a transformation like mine, I guarantee that you or a colleague or an employee will go through something that demands that they change. A marriage, a birth, a death, an illness, a divorce, the list honestly is endless. So how do you, as a leader, handle the fact that human beings are human beings and not human doings or human perfects? How do you hold that humanness and support them? How do you make the decisions that are best for your organization and your employees? How do you get your employees to slow down and breathe when they need to? Some places choose to churn through their employees because there's always another one to replace them. From factories to law firms, when someone is doing work that can be done by a new hire, the impulse that most leaders have is to simply replace them when they stop being successful productivity machines. I'm here to offer you another way of thinking about it. I grew up in a world where being feminine was seen as weakness. Not female, not woman, feminine. The traits of masculine, Decisive, always on, powerful, brief, independent, win in the world where I grew up. For me to heal after that surgery, I had to learn that my masculine, although it had brought me great professional success, was so out of balance with my feminine that it had almost killed me. What is feminine? It's not pink and frilly, although it certainly can be. When I say feminine, I mean fluid, changeable, open, generous, interdependent. Feminine energy is what is happening when a conversation around a conference table is free-flowing and creative. 
masculine energy is required to bring that conversation to a close and make a decision. One doesn't exist without the other. The moon can't be seen without the sun. The sun has nothing to nurture without the moon. But in many conference rooms, we have too much of one without the other. We have too much creativity and desire for consensus and too few decisions. Or we have predetermined decisions and not enough creativity, not enough generosity, not enough listening. Internally, I had to find that balance. And I found that balance in many ways, but a big one was learning to ask for help. By realizing that even though I had all the trappings of success, I wasn't succeeding by working 100 hours a week in a highly masculine way. I asked for help from my office, and they gave it to me in the form of medical leave. They gave it to me in the form of time. I asked for help from friends, and one of them showed up big by introducing me to an indigenous teacher who has changed my life by helping me change my perspective on my life. I asked for help from spirit or God or whomever it is that you pray to when you need help. I learned to meditate. I learned to breathe. I learned to slow down. And I learned that I didn't have all the answers, that no one person has all the answers. No one person has all the creativity. No one person can hold that kind of expectation without breaking apart because demanding that kind of clarity from myself and from others is untenable. My life is completely different from where it used to be. I now live in the country and spend my days walking in places like this. I put my corporate career on hold first to care for myself and then my sister as she battled cancer, then my father through his death, then my mother through her dementia, and then my sister again through her second bone marrow transplant in 15 years. I've had to learn and continue to remember that my instincts of being a masculine-driven control freak have to be tempered by the feminine qualities of kindness, generosity, and expansiveness. So, how do we do this? One of the many roles I currently hold is that of an elected leader for my village. And there, I put my theory to work every time I walk through the door or have a conversation. I take a deep breath and take the time to pay attention. Sometimes a problem can't be solved in 15 minutes, so I take the time that it takes. One villager came to me with a very strong concern about the streetlight in front of her house. After 10 minutes, it became clear that she wasn't actually worried about the streetlight, which was a fairly solvable problem. She was worried about the fact that her daughter can't afford to buy a home in the village, in part because of people like me making it a popular place to live. Eek. That conversation couldn't be solved that day, but taking the hour to hear her concerns and stay in the space of her pain and frustration at least let her see that she wasn't alone in her worries. It's not easy. I kept having to check myself wanting to end the conversation quickly because it was really uncomfortable for both of us. But I would take a deep breath and ask the next question, allow her the space to breathe and formulate her next thought. I ask people who've been in my village for a long time for advice. Who is the best person to think through this problem? How would you handle it? Am I doing it wrong? And then I take the time to check my need to be right and listen to their answer. Really listen, even if my values don't align. Even if I believe that my solution is better. It's impossible to find a new solution without listening to the real concerns and the experiences of those who have lived through the real problems and found previous solutions. 
Which leads me to the most important part, finding and staying in the hard conversations. Asking for advice can be awkward. Staying in a conversation where someone is accusing you of ruining their life is hard. Building the muscles to stay in the uncomfortable conversations is vitally important for successful leadership. Saying, I don't know. Saying, help me, please. Saying, I messed up. Please forgive me. Help me fix it. And underlying all of this is the importance of listening to what is actually happening in the conversation where you are. There is no point to hiring smart people and asking for their creativity if we don't then listen to their answers, if we don't listen to their data, if we don't listen to their concerns. When we let ourselves be human beings instead of human perfects, suddenly there's a lot of space in our lives to let our colleagues be human beings as well. So I'll leave you with a question. If you take the time to create the space to stop and listen in your life, what possibilities might emerge for you and for your team? Thank you.